This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation. With 100 days to go ahead of the midterm elections, Democrats revive a tax and spending package and hope voters will reward them if it passes. Last week saw a surprise development in the protracted Build Back Better saga. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who seemed opposed to a sweeping package, reversed course and joined his fellow Democrats to support an economic bill including hundreds of billions of dollars in tax increases for some corporations and the wealthy aimed at fighting inflation, cutting health care costs, and combating climate change. We'll talk with him and get the GOP perspective on the bill from Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey. All this as we had more dreary economic news, the Fed raised interest rates again, and the economy shrank for the second straight quarter. Inflation is at a 40-year high, but the job market remains strong, and gas prices have dropped. The president's take? That doesn't sound like a recession to me. Thank you very much. We'll see what Minneapolis Federal Reserve President Neil Kashkari has to say. Finally, the Face the Nation political panel and the CBS News Battleground Tracker poll are back. We'll have an estimate on where the race for control of the House stands, plus political analysis. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret is off this week. We've got a lot to get to today, and we begin with the news that President Biden is experiencing a rebound case of COVID, most likely due to his taking the drug Paxlovid. He has returned to isolation, but took to Twitter yesterday. Hey, folks, Joe Biden here. Tested positive this morning. Could be working from home for the next couple of days. Feeling fine. Everything's good. Although the president said that the rebound cases do happen with a small minority of folks, the actual number is difficult to track, and estimates vary on just how many Paxlovid users are affected. Another Democrat who is recovering from COVID is West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. He's been negotiating with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Inflation Reduction Act, and the final agreement was made in a Zoom call. Democrats say the bill would reduce the deficit by $300 billion. Revenue would come from a minimum corporate tax rate, expanded IRS tax enforcement, and by tightening a so-called carried interest loophole that benefits some investment managers. The bill would also make the largest investment in fighting climate change in U.S. history. Nearly $370 billion will go to new tax credits for renewable forms of electricity, electric vehicles, and grants to automakers to increase efficiency. On health care, the bill would keep the Affordable Care Act's premiums from increasing and cap out-of-pocket prescription drug costs for Medicare recipients at $2,000 per year. 
Medicare will also be able to directly negotiate prices with drug companies, reducing costs. We go now to West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin. Senator, welcome. I hope you're feeling better from the COVID. Uh, let me start with a... With I am, a, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, let me start with something you said back in 2010 in the debate when you were running for Senate. Here's what you said. I don't think during a time of recession you mess with any of the taxes or increase any taxes. So that's become the, your Republican colleague's favorite quote to roll out now that you've made this agreement with uh, Chuck Schumer that has a tax piece to it. Why'd you change your mind? John, I didn't change my, not, my mind. I've never changed at all. This is fighting inflation. This is all about the, the absolute horrible uh, position that people are in now because of the uh, inflation cost whether it be gasoline, whether it be food pricing, whether it be energy pricing, and it's around energy mostly it's driving these high inflation. This is going to do, take care of that because this is aggressively producing more energy to get more supply to get the prices down. That's what we're doing. But we didn't raise taxes, John. The taxes were, the corporate tax in America in 2017 before the Republican tax cut was 35%. They cut it to 21%, 14% reduction. All the people that I know are paying 21% or more. All the even larger corporations, but some of the largest corporations of a billion dollars of value or more don't even want to pay the minimum of 15%. So this is an issue of fairness. It's it's basically closing. This is a fairness and closing a loophole. So I'm not raising any taxes. I never thought that people weren't paying at least 21. Let me ask you about I don't know why. I mean, we went... Let me let me ask you on the raising. Okay, so I I understand what you're saying about closing loopholes. But the the Republican criticism, which attaches to what you said in 2010, is when you increase taxes by closing loopholes, you hurt supply. And during inflation, you want a lot of supply. And so even though this might not be a tax increase relative to previous rates, the taxes for certain companies will go up, which will make them produce more. So the theory goes and that will hurt inflation. Let me just say this, John. In the last two years, there have been massive record profits across the board by these largest corporations, massive record profits. And it's been the lowest capital expenditure in the last two years. So that didn't drive it. What they've all told me was we want security. We want to have some type of a a pathway forward in permitting and regulations. They're strangling us. And this is what we're doing. We're streamlining the regulations that people have to live within. Basically accelerating how we get things to market, how quick we can produce things, how quick we can basically produce more energy and how we can develop more technology and using that for our benefit. We're talking about also batteries for electric cars. If you want to get a discount on electric car by buying an EV, the battery better be made in America. It better be sourced in North America. It better be processed. Your Republican colleagues think you and Chuck Schumer did something underhanded by essentially it looked like there wasn't going to be anything big passed, and then and then you changed course, worked out something with Schumer. Uh, Senator Cornyn, the Republican from Texas, said that that unveiling this agreement between you and Senator Schumer was a declaration of political warfare. It's such a shame. John Cornyn is a good friend of mine. He's such a good man, and for the politics to be so toxic right now, first of all. I never thought this would come to fruition. I never spoke with anybody about it, any of my colleagues, because they were frustrated that nothing happened for so long. Uh, On the other, I never could get to Build Back Better, which was a $3.5 trillion spending bill. This is a $400 billion investment bill. And everything my Republicans talked about, reducing 
the amount of uh, uh, debt that we have. We're paying down $300 billion, first time in 25 years. They've got to like that. Um, and next of all, they wanted more energy. I want more energy. We're going to be producing more energy. There's an agreement that we're going to be drilling and doing more that we can um, to bring more energy to the market that reduces um, prices. They like that. Let me ask and there's going to be a, a streamlining of permitting, John. they got to like that. So well, I'm hoping they just take it cool off take a good look at the bill. Their argument is, and this matters because you are working with Republicans on other pieces of legislation, and Susan Collins, one of those Republicans you're working with, says that this, this break of trust, which is what they're calling it, you made certain representations, they would say, to Republicans and broke your trust. She said, Susan Collins said, it's a very unfortunate move that destroys the many bipartisan efforts that are underway. In other words, whether it's on election reform or same-sex marriage, that, that the well has been poisoned. Well, here's the thing. I think uh, Susan Collins is, you know, my very dear friend. We work almost on everything together. But the thing of it, I never told anybody that I wasn't going to do something. If I had a chance to fix the energy policy of the United States of America and I didn't do it, shame on me. If I had the chance to reduce the amount of inflation in people in West Virginia and across the country are enduring right now, shame on me. And I never thought they would come to an agreement and use a dual path and basically recognizing with a misadministration working with President Biden's administration and working with Chuck Schumer and all of them who basically were going a different direction and were very upset with me for so long that they would ever sit down. But I guess, we, you know, this thing has become truly uh, horrible for, the, for families all across America. So now to have a piece of legislation that we have energy and we have investments for new energy. But basically that's a responsibility. You can walk and chew gum. You have a balanced approach. These are solutions Americans want. Let me ask. And we were able to provide these solutions. Let's not make them political, John. You and Senator Schumer have a deal. A lot of Democrats who used to be very angry at you are suddenly now uh, saying nice things about you. Senator Kirsten Sinema, have you talked to Senator Sinema, whose vote is still unknown on these bills? Uh, and where do you think she'll go? Because if she doesn't vote for it, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Senator Sinema is a dear friend of mine, and we've worked very close together on so many pieces of legislation. And she's, she's so involved in this legislation. When you think about it, she's the one that really negotiated and worked very hard on getting Medicare, allowing them to negotiate uh, for lower drug prices, saving $288 billion. That's tremendous, which I support her completely on that. She's always been adamant about we're not going to be raising taxes, and I agree with her wholeheartedly. I made very, very, very carefully uh, evaluations that we wouldn't raise any taxes. Have you tried and that to lobby was the her? last scrub that was done. No, you don't. We don't. I, I've never lobbied my, my, my uh, colleagues on that. I just basically put the facts out, try to answer questions. I'm always trying to negotiate with them if, if they want, and I try to. And sometimes we don't get there. They get frustrated. But we're always looking at the next opportunity to improve the quality of life in America, and that's what we're doing. Finally, Senator, there was a vote on a bill this week that would provide health care to millions of veterans exposed to, to toxic fumes in burn pits during their deployments. Uh, Republicans who had previously voted for it voted against it. Pat Toomey, Republican from Pennsylvania, who will be on, who you've worked with extensively in your career, is worried that it adds to the deficit. That's something you care about. Does Pat Toomey have a point here? Sure. Well, Pat Toomey's going to get a he's going to get an amendment. He he'll have a vote on that. So, Pat, come on, let's go. Let's put put it out there. Put the facts out there. Pat's a good man, a good friend of mine. I'm sorry he's not going to be running again, and he's leaving the Senate because he's been a quality valued member of the Senate. 
and he represented Pennsylvania extremely well. So he's been a friend. We're going to work through this. I haven't seen the amendment. I'm, uh, I'll be briefed tomorrow morning on it and everything. But Pat's going to get his amendment, and let's see where it goes. Okay, so on that note, Senator Joe Manchin, thanks for being with us. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. We go now to Republican Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. He's in Zionsville this morning. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, John. Let's start with what the Democrats are calling the Inflation Reduction Act. You, you and other Republicans are not a fan. What is your principal critique? Well, it's going to make inflation worse, actually. Uh, so they've got a big corporate tax increase that's going to probably make this recession that we're in worse. All of this spending is unnecessary. It's going to exacerbate inflation. It is not going to reduce the deficit. And what did Senator Manchin get for this? Look, I'm a big fan of Joe Manchin. We are friends, as he said, and I like Joe very much. But I think he got taken to the cleaners. He's agreeing to all this bad policy in return for which he's been promised that there's going to be some kind of pro-energy infrastructure bill sometime in the future. Well, first of all, I thought we did that in the infrastructure bill. Secondly, what is the text? But most importantly, why isn't that in this bill? And the answer is because Democrats don't support it. So this is going to do a lot of harm and, and there's not going to be a corresponding benefit. There's a lot line in there. Let me focus on inflation, which everyone else yeah. is, in, is focused on. Sure. The Committee for a Responsible Budget, which has been a a fan of yours in the past and even in the present, said, uh, said this, although reconciliation was designed for deficit reduction, this would be the first time in many years it was actually used for that purpose. With inflation at a 40-year high and debt approaching record levels, this would be a welcomed improvement to the status quo. They and others who've looked at this say it will affect the, de- the, it will affect the deficit, lower the deficit in this legislation. Yeah, so... here's why we won't, because they use the same gimmick that Senator Manchin said he was opposed to in the past. They claim the revenue over a 10-year window from their big tax increase and their price controls. And then the expenditure that they acknowledge, they pretend is only going to be for three years. That's the uh, Obamacare subsidies for wealthy Americans. That's an obvious political payoff. 
The last time they had to do this, they said it would only be for two years. It's about to expire, and they can't, they can't have it expire before an election, no. so they're extending it, but only for three years. They have no intention of ever ending the Obamacare subsidies. But, Over a 10-year window, that wipes out the uh, purported deficit reduction. But So you're assuming bad faith in the future, but in this case, they extended it, and they found pay-fors so that it would be deficit, uh, so that it would decrease the deficit in this moment. So it's plausible, given what's right in front of us today, that that could happen again in the future. I get what you're saying. Politically, it might not. But based on what's before us, which is an extension of the ACA and deficit reduction, it is possible to happen. They're, they're also counting huge amounts of additional tax revenue from giving more taxes money to the IRS, which the CBO does not agree with. They're also not taking into account how much our economy will slow down from this big corporate tax increase that will mostly hurt manufacturing and domestic investment. Uh, these numbers are very, very dubious. Quickly on that question of production, I mentioned a, to Senator Manchin the idea supply goes down when you tax these companies. He said it's right. a matter of fairness that uh, these breaks that they have represent from a previous tax cut and that this is a matter of fairness in America. So look at look, what is the source of this tax increase? It's very simple. Uh, when we made our tax reform in 2017, what we did is we said if a business takes its profit and invests it back in its business in the form of capital investment, new equipment, new plant, expanding their capacity, then we said you'd be able to deduct the cost of that in the year in which you incur the cost. The Democrats are saying, we gotta bring that to an end despite the huge surge in capital expenditure that Let it me... brought us. And instead they're gonna say, you only get to recognize a small fraction of that. We're gonna, they're gonna raise the cost of investing in a business. Let me ask you about the legislation this week, the PACT Act, which I know you wanna talk about. It's right. providing healthcare to millions of veterans who were exposed to toxins. 123 Republicans in the House voted for this. Uh, 34 Senate Republicans voted for it. Same bill. This week, the bill didn't change, but the Republican votes did. Why? No, the Republican votes didn't change on the substance of the bill. Republicans have said, we want an amendment to change a provision that has nothing to do with veterans' health care. The Republicans support this. The Democrats added a provision that has nothing to do with veterans' health care, and that it's what? designed to change government accounting rules so that they can have a $400 billion spending spree. But My amendment, if, we're, if I'm allowed to offer it, will take out that provision and will not reduce veteran spending by a dime. You mentioned this is that the Democrats inserted this, but they did get 134 Republican votes and you have plenty of Republicans still voting for it. It seems like making this seem like a Democratic gimmick obscures what is your real point and your lifelong interest, which is this is about budgeting and whether the rules should be tight now or whether, as those who defend this bill say, allow Congress to work in the future to be fiscally responsible. Isn't that a more accurate way to think about well, what you're offering? Well, well, let's be careful here, because, John, you mischaracterized this when you were speaking with Senator Manchin. We are fully accepting that the new expenditures under the PACT Act for veterans exposed to toxic chemicals will increase the deficit, and we accept that as a price we have to pay for people who serve the country. What I'm objecting to 
is a budgetary gimmick, a sleight of hand in accounting rules that will allow totally unrelated spending of $400 billion over the next 10 years. But that's what we think shouldn't be in this bill. Never should have been. Well, there's a debate about that. And as you know, some Republicans don't think it's a it's a gimmick. They are still supporting this and they think it can be fixed later. But let me ask you this. I read your amendment language, which your language doesn't yeah. just deal with this other thing. It actually caps annual expenditures for the toxic fund. And after 10 years, it goes no, away. So that, John, yeah, that's totally incorrect. What it caps is how the government accounts for these transfers. But there is no cap on the amount of money that goes over. There is no cap on the total program. Look, if honest Democrats evaluating this will tell you, if my amendment passes, not a dime change in spending on but veterans programs. What changes is how the government accounts for it. I understand. But the accounting change, as you know, is a result. That's the reason they put it in that other bucket um, is that it doesn't subject it to the normal triage of budgeting. And the argument is that the values at stake here are more important than leaving it to the normal cut and thrust of budgeting. And so I would ask you this. Yeah, but that, that's... That, yeah. but, but it's worth protecting is their argument. Let me, it's about priorities. As you know, budgets are a way people talk about priorities in a government. This week, many of the yeah. Republicans who switched their vote voted for semiconductors. In 2017, Republicans lifted the caps on discretionary spending. We also have had a situation where lots of spending gets done in defense. You have been consistent with deficit reduction. But lots of other Republicans, when they think it's in their interest, say, let's lift the caps. Let's not be so fastidious about the budget. So why is it important to be fastidious when it comes to veterans, but less so when it comes to, say, supporting chip manufacturers? Because, John, once again, you're completely mischaracterizing this. We are all accepting that there are no changes to the projected spending path for all the veterans programs, the existing veterans programs and the new ones under the PACT Act. What we're objecting to is an accounting gimmick that will allow totally unrelated spending of $400 billion over the next 10 years. And most Republicans think we shouldn't loosen up the budget rules so that Democrats can go on a spending spree on things that have nothing to do with veterans' health care. Of course, Democrats have to be in charge in the future when that spending happens, and they may very well not be. But thank you, Senator, for being with us. We appreciate your time. I would impose, I would impose the restriction on Republicans as well. And you have the last word. Senator Toomey, thank you. We turn now to the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari. Good morning, Neil. Inflation. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Okay, everybody wants to know, inflation still hot? What does it what does it look like to you? It's very concerning. You know, we keep getting inflation readings, new data that comes in and, and as recently as this past week, and we keep getting surprised. It's higher than we expect, and it's not just a few categories. It's spreading out more broadly across the economy, and that's why the Federal Reserve is acting with such urgency to get it under control and bring it back down. Wages within that, uh, what does the wage picture look like um, in the two different ways we measure it, both just on its own and then relative to inflation? For most Americans, their wages are going up, but they're not going up as fast as inflation. So most Americans' real wages, real incomes are going down. That's why families are finding it increasingly hard to make ends meet. When they go to the grocery store, when they buy necessities, they're not able to buy as much because they're getting a real wage cut because inflation is growing so quickly. I mean, typically we think about wage-driven inflation, where wages grow quickly and then that leads to higher prices in a self-fulfilling spiral. That is not yet happening. 
high prices and wages are now trying to catch up to those high prices. Those high prices are being driven by supply chains and the war in Ukraine, among other factors. And so we need to get the economy back into balance before this really does become a wage-driven inflation story. Let me ask you about a, uh, a figure that people may not know as much about. Everybody knows about the Consumer Price Index and inflation. The Economic Cost Index came out this week, and some economists look at that as a signal for inflation. Tell me what you saw in the Economic Cost Index this week. Well, we have a lot of different measures, for example, of wages, of what's happening to wages. And ECI, as I call it, is one measure that uh, is a, is a, it's a robust measure of what's happening to wages and what's happening to benefits. And wages continue to climb. And on one level, it's a good thing. We want Americans to be making more money. But if wages are climbing such that the economy shows that it's overheating, that tells me that the Federal Reserve has more work to do to bring inflation down, to bring the economy into balance. Just at its basic level, inflation is when demand is outstripping supply. We know supply is low because of supply chains, because of the war in Ukraine, because of COVID. We hoped that supply would come online more quickly. That hasn't happened. So we have to get demand down into balance. Now, I hope we get some help on the supply side, but that doesn't change the fact that the Federal Reserve has its job to do, and we are committed to doing it. We have 30 seconds left. Help on the supply side. What does that mean? Well, I talk to a lot of global businesses who are trying to get their supply chain sorted out so that they can meet their customers' needs and make sure that there are products on the shelves. They're making some progress. There's some signs it's getting better, but it's taking a lot longer than they thought and that I thought. And so that means we cannot wait till right. supply fully heals. Right. We have Neil. to do our part with monetary policy. We're going to take a commercial. We'll be back to continue this conversation with Neil Kashkari. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Now, welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation with Minneapolis Federal Reserve's Neil Kashkari. Neil, uh, let's pick up where you left off on this question of supply. Um, when I was talking with uh, two senators earlier, there was this debate about whether taxation on companies that don't pay a minimum level of taxation will have their supply hurt. So in other words, you tax, tax them, supply goes down, that hurts with inflation. What's your assessment of that? You know, long uh, over the long term, that's probably true on the margin. People say that about raising interest rates. Why raise interest rates? That's going to make it more expensive for firms to invest, uh, and that's going to uh, not help with the supply side. That's true over the long term. But over the short term, 
the demand side effects totally swamp the supply side effects. And so when I look at a bill that's being considered that your two senators talked about, my guess is over the next couple of years, it's not going to have much of an impact on inflation. It's not going to affect how I analyze inflation over the next few years. I think long term, it may have some effect. But over the near term, we have a acute mismatch between demand and supply. And it's really up to the Federal Reserve to be able to bring that demand down. And we're committed to doing what we need to do. You know, help me understand recessions. There is a debate in Washington that's full of political gamesmanship. So take us inside why it matters if America is in a recession and what the component parts are that are a part of that and how that helps us understand the health of the economy. Well, it really matters when Americans feel it, when Americans, especially in the job market, that's the most important part of the economy, so to speak, for Americans is their job. Do they have a decent place to work and earning decent wages? And typically recessions are they demonstrate wide job losses, high unemployment. Those are terrible for American families. And we're not seeing anything like that. The labor market so far is very strong. We are seeing some sectors like the tech sector start to shed workers or start to cool down in hiring. But fundamentally, the labor market appears to be very strong, while GDP, the, the amount the economy is producing, appears to be shrinking. So we're getting mixed signals out of the economy. From my perspective, in terms of getting inflation in check, whether we are technically in a recession or not doesn't change my analysis. I'm focused on the inflation data. I'm focused on the wage data. And so far, inflation continues to surprise us to the upside. Wages continue to grow. So far, the labor market is very, very strong. And that means whether we are technically in a recession or not doesn't change the fact that the Federal Reserve has its own work to do, and we are committed to doing it. Last 20 seconds, Neil, on GDP, when it goes down, isn't that kind of what the Fed's trying to do, slow down growth? So is that a good number? Well, we definitely want to see some slowing. We don't want to see the economy overheating. Uh, we would love it if we can transition to a sustainable economy without tipping the economy into recession. There's not a great record of doing that. Typically, when uh, the economy slows down, it slows down by quite a bit, especially if it's the central bank that is inducing the slowdown. So we're going to do everything we can to try to avoid a recession, but we are committed to bringing inflation down, and we are going to do what we need to do. And we are a long way away from achieving an economy that is back at 2% inflation, and that's where we need to get to. All right, Neil Kashkari, thanks so much for being with us. 100 days and counting until the midterm elections, a sterling opportunity for our CBS News battleground tracker and our first estimate of where the battleground control for the House of Representatives stands. Republicans who currently hold 214 of 435 seats and are in the minority would take over control in the House by anywhere from a narrow majority to a sizable one if the election were held today. Our best estimate at the moment is 230 seats. Joining us now to explain all of this is CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto. Anthony, okay, that number 230 sticks in our mind, but but what is the largest reason that it looks like it might be 230? Uh, morning, John. So let's start by reminding people that there are 435 separate contests going on this fall. And we interviewed people across all those districts and put it into this model to show you that in terms of seats, which is what matters. Now, the first thing you notice is that most seats don't flip. That's typical. But there is a narrow band in which we're going to trade in this range. And that's what's really important to watch. Now, these seats that could swing back and forth, they're sort of these prevailing political wins, if you will. And this election seems like it's really influenced by what we might call 
the nature of the times, which is that a lot of people think that the country is moving in the wrong direction, that things aren't good. And that's not only the most important thing voters are telling us that's on their minds, but it's also that Republicans are winning those voters. And so that's really impacting those seats. And so the nature of the times is often associated with the president. The president is often, it's, you know, Joe Biden wouldn't like this, but it's often seen as a referendum on the presidency. So what, are the, what does the survey tell us about Joe Biden and the role he's playing in the election? Yeah, a president's always on the ballot in a midterm. And even if he's not really on the ballot, he's on voters' minds. That's certainly the case here. He's a big motivator for Republicans. And that's pretty typical because a president's party typically loses seats in a midterm. For them, it's, it's another bite at the apple. They get to vote again, if you will, after 2020. Now, the important thing, though, that leads to is Biden suffered some lower approval even among Democrats, and that's dampening enthusiasm among Democrats. And that's going to lead to another problem for the party right now, which is perhaps lower turnout from his base. So Republicans are angrier about the way things are happening now. They're turning out and they don't like the president. So the Democrats... Um, remind me again what they feel about Joe Biden and what do they feel about Donald Trump, who used to motivate them quite strongly? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is, if they're disappointed with Joe Biden, they may sit this out, is what they're telling us. You look at key parts of the Democratic constituency. For one, just one example, young people far less enthusiastic about voting than older Americans. That makes the electorate favor the Republicans right there if that Democratic base doesn't show up. Then let's mention the former president, Trump. It's interesting. He is just as much of a motivating factor as Joe Biden. He's still on Democrats' minds, even though he's out of office. So for Republicans, they see him as a positive. They actually think that former President Trump is fighting for their issues more than their party in Congress, clearly still seen as a leader of the party in that regard. But then for Democrats, he's a net negative. So that's something I think to watch. Do Democrats keep talking about him as we go forward? Because he does motivate Democrats. Right. So Donald Trump is motivating both parties. Have the January 6th hearings played a role or do they in your survey data? Well, in some sense, Democrats are watching it more. So they're kind of preaching to the converted. Um, What you do see is as Republicans have tuned out these hearings, there's a bit of a split. There's the Republicans who consider themselves MAGA Republicans. That's just over half the party, right? They're very close to the foreign president. They not only tuned it out, but some of them actually wish the president had succeeded in doing what he was, they think he was trying to do and stay in office. But there's a slight, slight number of Republicans who are watching this, and you see a little bit more hesitancy among them about their vote choice. So marginal differences matter, and I think that's going to be one of the keys going forward if some Republicans peel off as a result of this. Another focus in the political world, other than the January 6th hearings recently, has been the decision on Roe versus Wade. A lot of Democrats, pundits, thought this would energize the Democratic base. What does the survey say? Well, let's look at women under 50, because that's a key part of the Democratic base. They consider abortion to be just as important as other big issues, like the economy, like inflation. Um, They also believe that a Republican Congress would make things overall worse for women. And they describe the Republican Party as extreme. But there's a cross pressure here, which is that they don't see the Democrats as effective and they don't think that the Democrats are doing enough right now to protect abortion rights. So they're not necessarily seeing the answer 
from the Democrats. And that, at the moment, has the Democrats not doing as well with that group as they have in past elections. So does that mean they have an opinion uh, about Republicans, but it doesn't mean they're going to be motivated to necessarily vote on it? Right, because they have to get an answer from the Democrats, and they're not seeing that right now. Inside that question of women, college-educated women, that was a group the Democrats did well with. How is the Democratic Party doing now? Worse than they have in previous elections, and that is so important. Those numbers are down. They think that the Republican Congress would make things worse for women in the country, but concerned about the economy, very concerned about the direction of the country, and all of those things are factoring in, too. This is going to be one of the keys, if not the key groups, to watch through the fall. The final quickly, Anthony, is the Democrats think they have a spending bill that's about to pass through the Senate. Will that help their fortunes in the next 100 days? Um, people will reason from results. They'll reason from what they see at the cash register and the gas pump, not necessarily from legislation, right? And we see that. When people say they're personally affected, they're less enthusiastic about voting for Democrats. So they've got, what, six to eight weeks to see if people can, they can turn that idea around in people's minds. All right, Anthony Salvanto, thanks so much as always. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back with our political panel. Asma Khalid covers the White House for NPR. Jonathan Martin is senior political correspondent for The New York Times and the co-author of This Will Not Pass. Ramesh Panuru is the editor of The National Review. And Robert Costa is our own chief election and campaign correspondent. It's great to have you all here. I'll start with you, Ramesh. Uh, what did you take away from this polling that, we, that Anthony just talked about? Well, there were a lot of interesting findings in that poll, but the thing that stuck out most to me was the asymmetry in enthusiasm, that Republicans are more excited, opponents of this administration are more enthusiastic about showing up to vote. That's a pattern that we usually see in midterms. It's the reason why I think we've had so few periods of unified government in the last 50 years, that the, the public turns against whoever's in power in the White House. Asma, you cover the White House. <laughs> um, Joe Biden has talked about, I'm going to get out into the country, but Ramesh is talking about a country that may not, or a party that may not want to see him. So what's the thinking? Get him out there because to build enthusiasm or keep him at home because that won't work? Um, well, I do think the plan is to get him out there uh, once sort of this COVID sweep uh, clears. But I think the thinking is, I mean, we look at this past week, there are a couple of legislative wins that Democrats have had. And uh, I do think that the party, the, the White House believes that by going out on the road and selling some of these legislative accomplishments, 
they can boost the base. But I think that this is a challenge. I mean, I saw the enthusiasm thing too, Ramesh, and, and to me what I was struck with in particular was, you know, you, look, you talk about young voters. Sure, they never really show up in a midterm cycle, but they actually did show up in record numbers in 2018. Their enthusiasm has completely fallen off for Biden. You see it in polling. I've heard it when I go out on the road. They're just not excited about it. It's fallen off. In 18, it might have been inspired by Donald yeah. Trump. Jonathan, um, Anthony's polling showed no one turns him out like Donald Trump in both parties. So it's remarkable the codependence on Donald Trump uh, within the Democratic Party. It's sort of uh, seven years and counting now in which Donald Trump has offered the best mobilization, the best fundraising, and just the best overall grassroots energy for the Democratic Party, John. And Democrats quietly sort of need that to get their voters out in an otherwise difficult uh, election year for them. I mean, th those numbers among younger voters in the survey are so striking. And I think a big part of the reason, John, that Biden's approval rating is below 40 percent nationally is because of the drop off in his own party. Uh, you're only below 40 in these kind of polarized times if you're losing some folks on your own home team. And I think that's a huge part of their challenge, keeping those folks energized. And that's why it's why the, the climate deal, I think, could be important. Uh, there was hatched this past week for getting more energy infused into the sort of ranks of younger Democratic voters who they desperately need this fall. To build on that point, it's an important one. I remember when I first started covering Leader McConnell years ago, the person who would stop by more than anybody, it seemed, was then Vice President Joe Biden. He was the deal maker. And when I would talk to voters in 2020 on the Democratic side, they said they wanted to elect a deal maker who could make Washington work. And so you do wonder, as the campaign season heats up, can that deal making aspect of Biden, someone who from the White House shepherds a deal between Senator Manchin and Senate Democrats, can he get traction with voters who see Washington as dysfunctional? Ramesh, we're going to go back to the absolute base level of politics. But let's talk about policy for a second. As Bob's mentioning, there's there's some deals here that the president may or may not have been involved in. But what do you make of the legislative record and bipartisan legislative record between guns, infrastructure, maybe now, uh, well, semiconductors? What do you make of just the legislative record so far? I think that the legislative record is very impressive, measured against a baseline of a 50-50 Senate. The, Democrat, the legislative record is extremely disappointing measured against the baseline of the expectations that liberal Democrats had going into 2021 when they had the House, the Senate, and the White House, and there were grand ambitions. And one of the reasons for that drop-off in support and the demoralization of Democrats is exactly that gap, and that's what they've got to solve between now and November. You were saying, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, look, I think Biden sees these victories, John, as his rationale for why my party needs me. Um, I came here and said I can make the system work, get deals done across the aisle. Gosh darn, I've done it. Who else can do that? And by the way, also not so subtly, he's saying, who else can beat Trump as well? You know, I think there's some Democrats who would sort of have this uh, West Wing style fantasy in which Biden signs these bills into law. He puts down the pen and kind of does the reverse LBJ of after a sort of period of great success. He says, and with that, I'm going to fulfill my pledge to be a bridge uh, president. The, 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 the gate is 
is open and let the bridge fill up. And that's just never going to happen because we know Joe Biden. He's going to take from this success, John, I think, affirmation that, that my party and my country needs me. I can get these kind of deals done uh, in the Congress. I can take on Trump again. Uh, I alone, if you will, uh, can, <laughs> can, fix can do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. one, one thing that President Biden said this week when he was asked about a recession, the economy is on everybody's mind. He said he didn't see one. Is that a wise thing to do to get into a big debate about the recession or do they assume there's going to be people talking about the recession? We might as well try and get I mean, in that I, conversation. I was struck a lot by this. I mean, all week long we had the White House, some of the economic advisors at the White House reaching out to you know White House reporters like myself, economic reporters to preemptively essentially squash some of the, uh, the bad news that we knew was going to happen. But I do think, to, you know, to your point, I mean, I, many of the economists that I was speaking with this week will say, no, we don't see a recession at this particular moment. But in the same breath, They've said, we don't know. We might be in a recession in six months, particularly, you know, if the Fed really does um, raise interest rates too quickly. To me, it was a, a, a dangerous argument to make because, you know, it will be played on repeat later if the country is in a recession in six months. Um, I understand the political need to essentially alleviate concerns. I mean, nobody wants to hear, I think, in the country right now that we're in a recession. But it's dangerous because six months out, frankly, even before the, the midterms, this country could be in a recession. Uh, is anybody talking about the economy from the Democratic side who's making a case that is in all of its complexity, but makes the case essentially to voters, you go, you're going to want us in the future instead of the other team? When I'm out there on the campaign trail, it's evident that there's not necessarily an enthusiasm gap, but a mes- messaging gap. Are the Democrats explaining what they've done? $1.9 trillion in March of 2021. Then they pass an infrastructure bill. Now they have this climate and tax and deficit reduction package they're pushing forward. But is that breaking through to the voters that it needs to connect with? It's not entirely clear. And they're also talking about foreign policy in terms of the economy. I mean, this is a former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, now sitting there in the Oval Office, as China becomes more aggressive with Taiwan. That's the variable I'm also watching ahead of the midterms, both politically on policy and economically. What does China do and how does President Biden respond? Ramesh, do you think, the, let's imagine this gets through Manchin Schumer and cinema comes along. Does that, in the end of the day, matter? Or is it, you know, for every day between now and election, people are going to be still seeing higher prices? And, and uh, what's your assessment of, of its political yeah. effect? People don't wait to hear from the media or the NBER whether they're in a recession. Um, if most people's paycheck is going, you know, is, is, is not going as far as it used to, and that is true, um, they're going to think this is a recession, they're going to think this is a bad economy, and they're going to hold the party in power accountable. This administration, I think, has consistently played the politics of the economy badly, first in denying that inflation was going to happen, denying it was going to stick around, and now getting into this absurd definitional argument about whether we're in a recession or not. I think that that is going to actually slightly compound the problem by making them also look out of touch. Jonathan Martin, the Senate, let's look at the Senate first of the sure. two. How do the races look there? You, uh, and, and, and this was supposed to be a favorable year for Republicans. How's it turning out? Well, the, the wind is certainly blowing in their direction, uh, as it often does, uh, John, in the first midterm uh, of a president of the opposite party. 
But I think in Senate races and gubernatorial races, candidates do still matter. They don't matter as much in House races, which is more of a parliamentary referendum on the red versus blue and who's in power. I think it does matter more who the candidate is on the ballot uh, when you're talking about Gov and, and, and Senate races. And in that department, the Republicans are having real challenges because they've nominated candidates who, in some cases, are out of the mainstream. In other cases, just have uh, you know more baggage than O'Hare during the summer. And that can create, obviously, some challenges. Challenges. The third point, John, I would add is the finances. A lot of these GOP candidates are going to be welfare cases, which is always a problem in the Republican Party, <laughs> and they're going to need a bailout yeah. from a lot of these super PACs. The great irony of our times, uh, this cycle at least, is that the Donald Trump-backed candidates for Senate and Gov are going to require bailouts financially from people like Mitch McConnell and the old guard who they ran against. But let's not forget... The Republicans are not focused everywhere on the economy. You look at Pennsylvania's gubernatorial nominee, Doug Mastriano, an election denier. Out in Arizona, Carrie Lake, an election denier. This is pervasive in the GOP across the country. And I'm really watching Ohio's Senate race. Can Tim Ryan, a populist Democrat, actually beat J.D. Vance in a tough year? And can John Fetterman, running for Senate in Pennsylvania, upset Dr. Oz in a state that went for Trump uh, back in 2016. And I'm also curious how Democrats are really able to capitalize on the Dobbs decision, because this is something to me that's very unclear. I mean, Kansas, you know, we were talking about that earlier, that Kansas is this place where voters are going to have a chance just this week to vote on a constitutional amendment to change abortion rights in the state. You know, I sat down with the VP shortly after the decision came out, and she told me, I mean, this is something that she has personally been going out to states, North Carolina, Indiana, where it's not entirely settled law yet. Uh, I don't know that any of us really know how it's going to so the polling out. shows that it's not working. In other words, Democrats think the White House isn't doing the job in no, making the true. case. I think that they haven't sufficiently done a good, good enough job yet. But I think it's the one thing that Democrats could. I mean, if they want to shift the conversation away from the economy, this is a salient issue to do that on, yeah. if they can figure it out. And just real fast, um, uh, to pl plug our book shamelessly, uh, this will not pass. You can still buy it now. Um, we, we have a, a conversation uh, with Mitch McConnell on the late the night of January 6th in which he vowed to crush Trump in the primaries right. this year. The opposite happened right. in, in a lot of these states. John, Trump-backed candidates won Dr. Oz, J.D. Vance, perhaps Blake Masters in Arizona, and now it's on McConnell to help them out financially. If, if 30 a, seconds. If, there, if the wave is sufficiently strong for the Republicans, it can carry flawed candidates to victory. But the trouble is that it's going to take more resources. And some of these candidates are going to take more resources from the National Republican Party, from conservative donors all over the country, and thus that money won't be able to get other gettable races across the finish line. Okay. Republican wave lifts all leaky boats. Thank you to all of you for being with us. We're out of time. Thank you all out there for joining us. We'll be back in just a moment. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Margaret will be back next week. For Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Republican Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys Anthony Salvanto, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, Neil Kashkari. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network at 12 p.m. on Sundays 
It's available on demand on Paramount+. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.